what happens when you're going to do better due diligence on that new Ferrari you want to buy over the due diligence that you do on that MD or hospital that's doing a heart bypass on your dad? You might be surprised. Stay tuned. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your M.O. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight. There is a better road ahead. Hey, everybody. This is Nancy May from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. And I've got another amazing episode with Dan Frith, who is an attorney a practice, who practices in the state of Virginia, and he's been practicing there for 35 years. He's a specialist in the litigation of medical negligence cases, wrongful death litigation, and business and employment claims. So I guess if you're a, a doctor in dealing with wrongful death and your employment claims, you can go to the same guy at the same time. Anyway, Dan is also an author, a frequent speaker, and he's an expert to other trial attorney experts, which I love. It's nothing better than talking to the expert to the experts, right? He's also a member of the Million Dollar Advocate Forum, which is a result of all the success that he's had for his clients. So I don't know, is there something more than the Million Dollar Club? Maybe there's the Trillion Dollar Club. We'll get down there down the road. On that front, Dan is also married. He's a father of two boys. He's a graduate of the Virginia Polytechnical Institute and State University. Go Hokies! and Washington and Lee University Law School down in Lexington, Virginia, where my heart was lost and remains in many cases in the Blue Ridge Mountains of the Shenandoah Valley. I know it all too well. So thank you, Dan. Thanks for joining us here. Nancy, I'm happy to be here. I look forward to our discussion today. Great. This episode is all about the challenges that we have of really finding great medical care. And it's one thing if it's look, if you're looking at it for yourself. Sometimes I think we get comfortable with the doctors who've been referred to us by friends and family. But Dan and I were talking pre-recording about how important it is to really understand that you have to do your due diligence on everything. I mean, you think about it. You do your due diligence on a car, but you don't do it on a doctor. Like, what's wrong with that story, right? <laughs> so, we're going to dive into this as well as, you know, what happens when things go screwy or south. So Dan, let's just jump into this. And and I want to talk first a little bit about finding a reliable and trustworthy general practitioner. Forget, forget the specialist, but let's just talk with the basics to begin with. How do you even find a doctor other than going through the, I, I, quite frankly, I'm going through this myself now to find a new GP down in Florida versus the trusted one who I really loved up north. It's been really hard to find somebody down here. What do you do? I'm sure that's true. It, uh, and, and many of us uh, will continue to see, possibly if we live in the same town as an adult where we grew up, we may use the same family practitioner that our parents used or that an older sibling used, really without questioning it or looking into that physician's skill set and, and background. So it's hard. It, finding information out about you are treating physicians, and you made the mention earlier, we do more research maybe about where we're going to buy our next car and what type of car it is than we do who is going to do our uh, kidney transplant. That's not smart for the patient, and, and it can be dangerous. And it, 
there are lots of places to look. Nancy, uh, there's no one place where you can get all the answers. I have people all the time talk to me about, well, you know, I know there are these doctor rating sites. Yep, you get far stars. And I've been on those. I've seen the doctors, the horrific doctors that we fired from my parents' care. And they all got four or five stars because, oh, you know, Dr. So-and-so was just wonderful. You know, that guy killed people. I know it for a fact. Well, it's true. And and it's only a starting place. And I, I would not rely upon that. Uh, information to um, to help me make a decision. It can be part of the process. I mean, there, those uh, rating sites include healthgrades, vitals.com, webmd, ratemds.com. Uh, all those provide a little bit of information. And in a few minutes, I think we're going to talk a little bit about hospitals. Yep. I will put a plug in for uh, U.S. News Best Hospitals uh, website. Uh, I think they do a fairly good job uh, providing updated and valuable information in terms of selecting a hospital. But for for the individual physicians, physicians, Google is your friend. Google that doctor's name and you may find everything from letters to the editor in your local newspaper. You, You should be able to find fairly quickly and fairly easily her or his education and background. And let's talk a little bit about that. Um, Yeah, please, because, you know, there are a lot of foreign doctors, and I think there's that natural inclination to think because somebody got their MD in India doesn't mean that they're, you know, means that they're not good because they they weren't trained at the medical school of of Dartmouth or NYU or someplace else. Especially if, if they're Indian or Pakistani or they grew up in that foreign country, it's more certainly understandable that they would have uh, attended undergraduate and graduate schools there. But I will tell you, Nancy, from my opinion, most U.S.-born folks who go to foreign medical schools are attending those medical schools because they could not gain acceptance to U.S. medical schools. So we're talking about we're talking about U.S. born physicians. You know, it's as as I call them in my my board practice. You know, the male and pale guys, right? right? <laughs> Who are out there? You typically was old male and pale. That described you. I'm sorry. I'm pretty, <laughs> you know, please anybody who's who's out there in the audience, uh, don't take it uh, personally. <laughs> but it, it it is. I I think that um, that's not to say that a an American born individual who goes to a foreign medical school cannot be a good doctor or are not properly trained, but certainly it is something that you need to factor in to your decision as to whether or not you want to go with this doctor. And there are so many different doctors out there in terms of the types of education. There are MDs, which is a medical doctor. There's DOs, a doctor of osteopathy, for example. And we're seeing DOs more and more frequently in our practice in Virginia. Uh, And it's too detailed to get into, but their orientation is a little bit different. Their training is a little bit different than the traditional medical doctor, but they're all called doctor. Let me ask you on that front, the difference between, let's say, a primary care physician that's an MD, would the primary care physician also be, could be possibly a, a DO? No, no, no. That's the osteopathy is just, is we're talking about the bones and the joints and everything Correct. else. Both of those physicians would have gone to an undergraduate school somewhere, then gone to medical school, then completed a internship and residency, whether they went to a 
an osteopathic program or to uh, the traditional medical program. So they can be one or the other or not both, right? Not both, not both. And, and, okay. and there is also a misunderstanding that we see a lot with folks, a podiatrist. A podiatrist is not a medical doctor. They are called doctor. They have specialty training in treatment and diagnosis and surgery of foot issues, sometimes ankle issues. It depends on the various states, but they're not a medical doctor. A orthopedic surgeon, for example, who's trained as a medical doctor, in my opinion, would have more experience and a greater skill set than a doctor of podiatric medicine, but they treat the same thing. Yet they can still take a knife to your skin and open your foot or whatever else. And, Correct. and we're trusting somebody with a scalpel to hopefully make us better. But, you know, a scalpel doesn't always do the trick, right? It doesn't. Sometimes it does the damage. A good physical therapist can go a long time. Years back, I had a, a, a problem with the so shoulder, mm -hmm. sort of a rotator cuff type thing. And a friend of mine had the same thing. She went to a surgeon who said, oh, we'll cut on this and we'll do that. And, and she got the surgery. And I went to a doctor who said, well, we can do surgery. And I said, let me get a second opinion. And I went to a chiropractor who pa practiced also Eastern or Western medicine. And he said, you can do that. But, and this, the interesting thing is that this fellow had previously been a structural engineer in his earlier training. So he, you know, he looked at the, the body as, as a bridge might work. And he said, we can, you can go do that, or this will take a little bit longer, but we'll try this other work. And it'll take about six months of coming back. And then you, you practice the, the exercises that I, I give you in between and you should be okay. And it worked. And I didn't have to worry about the surgery. Now, you know, I didn't compare apples to apples necessarily with what she had, but it was interesting that she went through the pain of the surgery and which lasted her longer in recovery. I, I have a have a very good friend who is a highly skilled uh, vascular surgeon, probably one of the most prominent uh, vascular surgeons in the mid-Atlantic area of the United States. And he's had some back issues and He's seen all kinds of neurosurgical specialists and he refuses to be operated on. And he's, we've had long discussions about this. He said, Dan, I've seen too many damn things go wrong in surgery. I am not. And he's a surgeon himself, correct, right? Correct. He's like, yeah, I'll, I'll find another way around it. It's interesting. Yeah, it really, really is. Our bodies are closed except at our mouth and our eyes and our, our nose and our ears and other places that we won't mention because it's rude. <laughs> And we should use more of our eyes and ears, I think. Right. Well, just right. Yeah. Then, you know, but it's a closed system, basically. And why open it and make it worse? It is. But if if you're looking, um, you know. Although you do need it sometimes. I, I mean, I get it. You know, cardiac issues. There are certain things that you just can't. Broken bones. Been there, done that. You know, it's. Right not going to fix itself. One of the things that some of your listeners can turn to, I know it exists in Virginia where I live and practice, and I feel with a high degree of confidence it exists everywhere. Every state in the United States has a licensing board for mm -hmm. medical professionals. And in Virginia, for example, I can pull up the name of any licensed doctor, regardless of whether they're an osteopath or a medical doctor or a podiatrist. And I can look in there and I can find out where this doctor went to his medical school or osteopathic school. Huh. I can look in there and see where he did his 
internship and residency. Mm-hmm. I can look in there and confirm if he is board certified as an orthopedic surgeon, neurosurgeon, whatever. I can find out if he is has gone through any fellowships, some super subspecialty training, which we can talk about later. All that information is available through a government-maintained a registry that is the Board of Medicine in Virginia. And fairly easy to do from state to state. The other thing is in looking up doctors, and I do this myself when doing background reviews on, on anybody or anything I'm, I'm trying to get some details on, is you enter the name of the person, you know, like MD, Jim Smith, MD. And then after the name, you type a plus sign and lawsuit, litigation, judgment, whatever you want, do several different searches and you'll be surprised what will come up. Be shocked. Right? Yeah. You will be, you'll be like, oh my God, I had like no idea. WT. Well, well, anyway, (laughs) you're an attorney, so you know what happens behind the scenes and how things can happen and just not become public knowledge fairly quickly. That is true. And, and, And I'll tell you something else to keep an eye out for if you're looking for physicians, regardless of the specialty or whether it's a general practice. What doctors have to go through for their education and training is fairly lengthy, very expensive, very time consuming. So they've gone to four years of undergraduate school. They've gone to four years of medical school. Then they've done anywhere between a two and six year internship and residency. And then they may have done a fellowship for two to three years thereafter. So a lot of these doctors are in their mid thirties before they're out on their own, so to speak. If you see a physician, let's say you, you live in Columbia, South Carolina, and all of a sudden a 55 year old orthopedic surgeon from Chicago relocates to your area and starts saying that he or she is the best shoulder surgeon to ever walk the earth. Be suspicious. People, professionals, especially medical professionals, don't pick up and move their practice multiple states away when they've already invested substantial time in building up a practice and building up a reputation unless there's a problem. And in my experience, there's been two problems. One, they've gone through a horrible family divorce breakup and they want to start fresh someplace else. And that's fine. That's certainly okay. Two, they've had problems where they are medically. Either they don't get along with the physicians they practice with, they don't get along at the hospital where they have surgical privileges, or they've had two or three or four or five malpractice cases against them and they're going to, they're going to skip town. And now they show up in your town at the ripe old age of 50 to start all over again. Run. There are two professions. Well, there are others, but these are the two that could come to mind. So you mentioned the, the medical industry. The second one is the building industry. <laughs> so very similar. We're going through that ourselves. I'm like, oh my God, you know, this the stories and the research that we have found. It's just uh you know, I do my due diligence every way. I want to sort of take a, a quick step back and you mentioned board certified. Now, is every medical doctor um, board certified and what does that necessarily mean and is it important? Yes. First, your last question first. It is extremely important in my opinion. And what it means, let's take an orthopedic surgeon, for example. An orthopedic surgeon has gone to four years of medical school and then uh, a year of internship and then three to four years of a residency. At that point in time, they are quote, unquote, an orthopedic surgeon who can go out and hang their shingle and start practicing. Now, each specialty has its own uh, length of time uh, that you have to practice before you can sit for your boards. It's usually one to two years after you start practicing. 
But at that point in time, you can take a written examination from a board certifying body that determines your level of competence. If you pass it, it doesn't mean you're great. It means you're competent. If you're not board certified, you can still be out there practicing orthopedic surgery and you may be a very good doctor, but um, being board certified is yet an additional level of comfort for the patient that this person knows what they're doing. Yeah, it's, it's another um, check and balance, I guess, for the for the consumer of the, the health care insurance or the health care consumer. Right. So we talked a little bit about how to find the information, where to get it. You can also find disciplinary actions on the state filings or state records as well beyond doing what I said, you know, Google litigation filings, whatever. You typically can. Yeah. Again, I can't speak to all states, but um, at least in Virginia and a couple other states, I'm sure that you can. So you've, you've, let's say you've found all this information. You've, you've gone to a doctor for the first time. And I'm going to use myself as an example here because I'm looking for a new doctor. I just made an appointment for my first exam with the doctor. And I've asked a lot of questions up front, including how long is the average waiting time? <laughs> which is, which for those of you that you don't know, here's a little trick, at least down here in Florida, that happens. We at, at one point or sometimes would wait three hours for an appointment with my parents. And so you see a, a whole room of elderly people sitting there waiting for the doctor and they're waiting and waiting and waiting. Well, in one situation, I happen to know of a doctor who car mechanic was also waiting there for an appointment. And the doctor is so enamored with his new car, he pulled the guy aside and said, forget these people in the room. I'm going to take you out for a new ride in my car while well, he left everybody sitting in there and nobody knew what was going on. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's not a good sign. The other is that quite frequently what they'll do is they will double and triple and quadruple book appointments because they know that people will cancel and not or just not show up in an older population. That's wrong as far as I'm concerned. If somebody doesn't show up, get through the day faster or create some sort of fine system where, you know, if you don't show up, there's a, there's a, you know, $20 fee that you'll be billed, whatever, whatever that is. Just like hairdressers do the same thing, right? Or restaurants in some places. But I do ask those questions too. And then anything that you found about the doctor, take to that meeting and say, this is what I found. Can you explain this? They're not going to like you for it, but who cares? It's you or a parent that you're taking care of, right? Yeah, you're paying for it. And, and I'll tell you another thing I think is important, age, age of that provider. I think the sweet spot for healthcare providers is somewhere between 45 and 55 years old. If they're younger than that, they may not have the requisite experience that you really need. Mm -hmm. If they're older than that, they may not be... Uh, not keeping up to date. Interesting. So, but doctors are supposed to keep up to date on their expertise. Doesn't necessarily mean that they're keeping up with their their certifications that they that Correct. they need to. Correct. One thing is, I I think people to put too much credence in is bedside manner. Yeah. Th again, that that's one of the things you can look at. Just because a physician's bedside manner, they're, they're not chatty and friendly and uh, that sort of thing. That's not necessarily. A bad thing. One of the, again, a different surgeon I know is um, in my area, he's all business all the time. You wouldn't be able to sit down and chat with him about your favorite sports or have a beer with him in the bar because he has his focus on his daily practice every day, all hours of that day. And uh, he's a very, very good doctor. If they don't look at you or they have their back turned to you and, and they're not 
listening to you and they're not taking notes about why you're there and what your health history is. Now that's when you should have a concern. If, if in terms of being chatty and friendly and hail fellow well met, that part doesn't bother me much at all. If they're not listening to you, if they're not engaged with you and asking questions about, well, have you been on medication for this before? Tell me about this. Tell me about that. And, and they're documenting it. The, the physician has got to be, a good clinician has got to document extremely well and has to take a very detailed medical history and surgical history. Either that physician does or the physician's assistant. And if they're not doing that, I, I would find another doctor. If they're, if they're unwilling to document why you're there and, and I'm not even getting to the, the physical examination, uh, so to speak, the hands-on, does this hurt when I push here? They have to know your medical history. They have to know what medications you're on now. If they don't, then they're not going to diagnose you correctly. and They're not going to know how to treat your problem. Yeah, just start asking questions. So the doctor's not asking questions. Ask them yourself. And sometimes this is a little unnerving when you're going in with a, a parent or a spouse to be a second set of eyes and ears. And, and if that's the case, I highly recommend going into the exam room with somebody, if you're an overseer or a caregiver or you know, guardian, whatever that is, because that second set of eyes and ears gives a certain level of authority is not the right word, but it, it gets the attention, I think, of the medical professional on how important this time with them is for you and your loved one at any given point in time. Now, we had a, a situation where I was told, you know, my dad had gone into a meeting, I wanted to be down here for an exam for him. And and this was a doctor who I found out afterwards had literally killed some people or caused the death of people and told them not to worry about the hospital bill, he would take care of it. <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> Sometimes having those sidebar conversations with others in the community is really good to find out what's going on and then, you know, trust but verify. And in this particular case, my dad was told not to sit on the exam table because that was the doctor's desk. And brash me said, the doctor can use his desk. Good for you. I will good sit here. <laughs> And, and of course, you know, now there's that rapport. Anybody in business, they know that the rapport is at the eye level. So he's looking and talking to my knees like a scared little <laughs> rabbit, which probably wasn't good either. And I'm looking down at the top of the bald spot on his head. And my dad's like, huh, what's going on? Because he didn't have his hearing aids. In. Oh, so <laughs> and the list went on. But I was madder than all get out. Good for you. The fact that this doctor gave no respect to my father, his patient, and was cowering. And I don't think I was, I was nasty. I was firm and professional and asking for questions. But, and I had a conversation with the, the front staff who called me all sorts of names on the way out, which um, I just said, and you're fired. <laughs> Just like the TV show, like off with his head. You know, I felt like the queen of hearts. And uh, but no, Nancy, you bring up a really good point, um, especially. Fire your doctor if you're not satisfied. Go someplace else. Fire your doctor if you're not satisfied. And if the doctor won't answer your questions, go find a doctor who will. And if they appear scared or nervous or uncomfortable, chances are there's a reason for that, right? Yeah. There's a there's yeah. another friend of mine. Uh, we had this conversation about doctors and, and interviewing or just being in the same room with them when during an exam. And she refuses to call the doctor, like Dr. Smith. She'll say, Jim, you're referring to me as Nancy. So Jim, you know, <laughs> Dan, like 
let's have this conversation person to person. And if they don't like it, then she says, we've got a problem. That's good. That's good. So it was an, and, and she's a psychologist. So that's, you know, that was another series. Before we move on to one point I wanted to yeah. mention in this topic, I think it's real important for our parents, let's say, uh, my mother's still alive. I'm 65. She's 85. If she had an, uh, has an important physician appointment, either I or one of my two brothers will be there with her because my mom grew up in a time and place where whatever the doctor said, that's the gospel. And you don't question the doctor. You don't ask questions. You just nod your head and you do whatever he or she tells you to do. And that's not a good thing. That's really not a good thing. That's not a good way to approach the, the somewhat of a give and take of a doctor-patient relationship. And I, I really encourage people that if you have someone you can take with you to those important physician examinations and meetings, do so. You're scared, you're uncomfortable, and you may not be scared, but there's a certain ability or amount of uncomfortableness, nervousness. You know, they, they call it, was it the white, the white coat syndrome? Correct. Blood pressures will go up. You'll forget to ask questions. Write your notes down before you go to the doctor so that you've at least got them, and then you can write notes further on. You know, they would respect you even more. Agreed. Another way to get a, a referral to a doctor is go to the hospital referral system, but that doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to get a good doctor either. It does not. We have a fairly large healthcare gorilla in, in my area of Virginia, and they probably have a thousand physicians as employees. Mm -hmm. And you can bet your bottom dollar that you're going to get referred from your doctor to another doctor of the same group. They're not going to refer you outside of the group, even if uh, there's another well-qualified, maybe more experienced physician in your specialty at Duke or at uh, Georgetown. They're going to, they're going to mm -hmm. first refer to themselves. Well, and the, uh, the other question I have for you when it comes to doctors who are affiliated with hospitals, I'm going to guess, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, that if there's a group of physicians and you're looking for one and they say, you know, here's a list of doctors and the primary care doctors affiliated with our hospital, they're probably going to recommend or refer you to the one if you're calling that has the lowest amount of billing because they want to get those billings up. So understand that this is medicine, but it's a business and it's the business of medicine. If you understand that, then you'll understand and be able to have better care for yourself because you take control of the situation and what's involved. But hospitals also have problems with doctors that aren't necessarily documented in a more public way. So trying to get a hold of that information is, is tough. And I had a conversation with the local CEO of a, of a hospital down here who just retired. And I said, you've got some issues with a few through MDs there. And he said, yes, we know. And I said, so why can't you just fire them? They're incompetent. He said, well, they are incompetent, but we can't fire them because unless they've got a record of actual, a larger number of deaths that we can document publicly. And somebody else told me that that's not true, but, um, but this is, you know, this is a hospital that's owned by HCA. And so they're reporting to a higher level. How does that work? Or is that true? Or I, I think that, uh, I, sadly, uh, there's not a lot of self-policing by HCA and other large healthcare providers. For example, I know that I have had two cases against an HCA-employed surgeon, and this surgeon has been practicing probably less than 10 years I turned down a third case against this surgeon for reasons unrelated to merit. And, and this is someone who I've had discussions with the 
attorney defending him hired by HCA's malpractice carrier, and they're aware of the problem. Why they're not doing anything, I do not know. Unless he's just producing enough money that it becomes too profitable, whether the individual is a bad practitioner or not, right? Mm -hmm. So look at the balance sheet, the amount of gold or, or greenbacks versus the amount of um, graystone, <laughs> meaning headstones, that, right? That's very, very true. And I'll tell you, these um, healthcare, the provision of healthcare in America is truly a business. Uh, it is a profession, but it is truly a business. And despite the fact that we sue hospitals and doctors all the time, uh, we still do a little bit of um, reviewing physician contracts. And some of the stuff that's in those contracts is amazing. So can you give me an example? A physician who could only receive bonuses for his uh, work, he's already going to be paid very, very well, after he had billed 3,000 hours a year of patient examinations. You start doing the math and figure out how many hours a day, if that, if that physician works six days a week, 52 weeks a year, it's ridiculous. That's, that, that is just setting up for poor patient care driven solely by that providers, not his, but the people who were employing him, their desire to profit. Ooh, you know, it's, I try not to get discouraged about our healthcare system. You know, they say it's better overseas in the UK and Canada and elsewhere, but I'm not necessarily sure that that's true. It's just different. So there are there are many cases that are or that I've heard of that are also of concern in other parts of the world. It's just, you know, it's how the businesses run, no matter where it is. The profit motive for providers is uh, at the top of the list of their goals and their focus, but also health insurance companies. So how do you tell if a doctor is more concerned about the relationship with the health insurer who pays them? We have to understand that we are not the customer ultimately. It is the person who pays the provide the deliverer of the of the service. So if we're buying a car, our cash is coming out of our wallet to buy that car. But if we're having a, if we have a car accident, it's the insurer that is the customer of the car repair company or the, the body shop, not us. So the same thing in the medical practice, we are not technically, we're necessary evil of, of that the, the, the doctors need in order to get paid. Without us, they don't get paid, but they get paid by the insurer, unless you're private paying, you're doing that directly. That's all correct. And that, that's probably a topic that could be its own uh, podcast. From what I have seen, the providers, and when I say providers, I'm not necessarily talking about the hands-on surgeons and family practice doctors and pediatricians and OBGYNs. I mean the companies that they work for, the hospitals that they work for. Those entities and the health insurance in, uh, companies are making so much money, nobody is going to gripe that the other one is doing business unfairly. Cry poor. Let's do a fundraiser for the hospital, the poor hospital. We feel so bad for them. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. You know, we'll put our name on the medical wing. And then all of a sudden it's the emergency wing with, you know, Nancy May emergency wing on there. By the way, that's not going to happen just so that you know. But <laughs> I want a room there. I'd like a room in the Nancy Right. If, if that happens, this podcast better be doing a hell of a lot better than it is now, but it's doing good, <laughs> but that's not the goal. So if you have spare cash, <laughs> drop it in so we can buy the medical wing and you can all go here. <laughs> oh, God.
what I'd like to do is we're going to sort of end the show right now. And then we're going to do part two on selecting hospitals and specialists. Okay. So that's it for doing it best with elder care success. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Dan. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity, LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright, Caremanity, LLC.